Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, November 18th, 2014, and as always, I am coming to you from my home in Boulder, Colorado, and am here tonight with Brett Walker, who is running the tech for the call in the kitchen. Hey, Brett, how you doing tonight? Hey, good. Good. Just drinking my tea. Oh, good. And little Stella finally calmed down and is curled up in the couch, so we're hoping that indeed sleeping dogs will lie. It's just that kind of night here, actually. It's cold. We've had a foot of snow. I love snow in the sense that it calms everything down. It's, it truly is a blanket that quiets everything. You know, I was just appreciating the, the icicles and sort of this holiday feeling that really is coming uh, around the corner here. Next week is Thanksgiving in the U.S., and then we move into the holiday season of December and Christmas and all of that. You know, I was looking at the icicles. I have these icicles that are two, three feet long hanging from my house and how they're sparkling and beautiful and like a Courier and Ives painting. On one hand, I'm enjoying it. And on the other hand, I realize it's not good for my rain spouts and, you know, it's rotting the wood underneath the soffits. And so, you know, this is the problem with adulthood. And I still object. But part of growing up is that we know more about what can go wrong and it's actually a problem, <laughs> especially for evolutionaries. So we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more as the night wears on here. I want to start with just a couple quick logistical items. One is, first of all, a word from our sponsor, and that is IntegralLife.com, which is uh, the website, main integral website uh, on the planet, uh, the home of Ken Wilbur and his interviews and dialogues and work. The folks at Integral Life really got me started on this podcast and still publish it, and I'm very grateful. So thanks, guys. And uh, folks, check out IntegralLife.com and join and be part of it. It's really a, a great community. I'd also encourage those of you who are interested in following along the Integral Theory that I may use tonight, although I try to keep it to a dull roar, there are a couple charts that you can link to from the email that came to you to remind you of the call tonight. And there are a, there's a, a chart of the quadrants and the altitudes, and you can check those out, and um, it might help you understand some of what we're talking about. Uh, let's see. Also, if you're interested in making a comment or a question, press 1, and Brett will check it out, and uh, we'll get to what we can at the end of the call. All right, so this is the last of the fall series that we're doing. And uh, after this, I will be taking uh, a few weeks off until actually January 6th, so whatever that is, six weeks off, to do some other projects. I'll talk a little bit about that uh, as, at the end of the call as well. So just a quickie, I noticed a column in the New York Times Sunday section in the, the review section from Tom Friedman that I thought was interesting. And he's, he's been writing a good bit about the interiority of the people in the Middle East and, you know, these problem areas and how these folks are thinking and what the problems are arising, not necessarily in terms of what they think, but how they think. 
And this is an integral insight. And in his column on Sunday entitled, Who Are We?, he quotes a director of a think tank called the El Mesber Studies and Research Center out of Dubai, and his name is Abdullah Hamadadin. And Hamadadin says that ISIS is not just a religious problem that has to be combated with a more inclusive Islamic narrative, but it's the product of all the problems ailing this region at once. Underdevelopment, sectarianism, lagging education, sexual repression, lack of respect for women, and a lack of pluralism in all intellectual thought. And this, of course, is the definition of the pre-modern mind. He goes on to say, people are attracted to moderate religion because they are moderate to begin with. People are attracted to extreme black and white religious ideologies because the warped social and economic context they live in produces an attraction to black and white solutions. And that's why we call the amber stage of development or the traditionalist stage of development and the red stage of development that precedes it to be absolutistic in its thinking, black and white in its thinking. He goes on to say, and this again is uh, Hamadadin from the think tank, He's, uh, Friedman's quoting him as saying, the suicide bomber can decide not to push the button. And our job is to understand how we can help him decide not to push the button, to make him or her aware, conscious, and rational. Aware, conscious, and rational are sort of code words for moving into the modern or the orange altitude of development. It's all about how we equip and support our youth and prevent them from being someone who says, I have the truth. We need them to have the ability to deconstruct ideas and be immune to extremism and self-reliant. It's all about how we get them to pause and think before they act. And again, this is really getting to the consciousness structures that are so important and integral, where again, it's not about what people think, but how they think. And people who think absolutistically, and these are caused by life conditions, as these countries broke down into war, people ratchet down into the earliest safe stage of development, not only in their actions, but in their thinking. So I appreciate seeing that from Friedman. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about is a movie I saw this last weekend. And Brett, you saw it too, I believe. Uh, and that is the movie Interstellar. It's really worth mentioning from an integral perspective. It's a big movie. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of it. It stars Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, Michael Caine. It's produced, directed, written by Christopher Nolan, written also with his brother, Jonathan. And, and, I, and I've liked Christopher Nolan as a movie maker over the years, he's always trying something, and, and I appreciate that. He, he did Memento, which is, you know, a, a really a great movie about how, well, you, the basic premise is that there are two storylines, one moving forward in time and the other moving backward in time. And then his other movie, Inception, plays with the idea of getting into each other's minds and dreams and heads. And then he did the Batman trilogy, the Dark, Dark Knight trilogy, 
where he brought forth, I think, one of the iconic archetypal characters of our time, and that's Heath Ledger as the Joker, uh, who is really an embodiment of evil. I mean, he was described uh, in the movie as a man who wasn't looking for anything logical like money. He couldn't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. He was a man who just wanted to watch the world burn. And, you know, there's a purity to that. You know, I, I, I understand that uh, Christopher Nolan understands evil. But I, I can't say that I've ever loved his movies because I never, you know, they, they seemed sort of intellectual. They were cool. They were analytical. And, and, you know, of course, that can be great art. And I think he achieved that in, in many ways. But there was nothing that really touched my heart and belly, if you know what I mean, about his movies until this one. And this Interstellar is really just full of love. Uh, in fact, it's about a cosmos that is full of love. And that itself is interesting to integralists. And, you know, I got to say, I saw it a couple days ago. It's still with me, the characters, the story, the message. And just a couple comments about it. Uh, it of course, it starts as an apocalyptic story about how Earth is, you know, ecological hell and the only crop growing is corn and there's a dust bowl. And it's very nonspecific and sort of general and impressionistic about it. But good Lord, I'm waiting for a movie that doesn't have an apocalyptic theme to it. Uh, but nevertheless, it does. But the that, that, that sort of spurs the rest of the movie, so I can't complain. I think he actually handled it very well, in, effect, in, in fact. Um, it was very moving. But what is so remarkable and worth mentioning about this movie from an integral perspective is that he it's a scientific movie in the sense that it's about space travel and so forth. But it's a, a movie that deals both with the exteriors, that is the third person material reality. Uh, and it, it, you know, it really does express some of our deepest scientific knowledge about the nature of the cosmos. In fact, he worked with a renowned physicist, Kip Thorne, who grounded it in real science. And so it talks about wormholes and and how time and space folds like a piece of paper so that, you know, the point at the top of the page and the point at the bottom of the page, you know, it might take, you know, 10,000 light years to get from one to the other. But if you fold it, there they are. They're right next to each other. And that this is, you know, scientifically valid. And in fact, they put out a book called The Science of Interstellar that um, I, I haven't seen, but, uh, you know, it'd be something that would be, uh, I'd be interested in checking out. So... That's one thing I loved about it. And then the other part that I loved is that in addition to this sort of awesome material glory, you know, this, this, this view of the cosmos that is so huge and, and thrilling in, a, in an exterior way, that he shows a universe that is also intelligent and loving. And I'm not going to spoil the movie, but if it's not intelligent and loving, it is at least home to a loving intelligence that is far greater than ours. And, you know, it, the movie's getting a lot of blowback from the materialistic and atheistic community. I, I've seen, you know, these blogs that talk about Christopher Nolan selling out and, you know, trying to, you know, appeal to people's heartstrings. And I think there's some truth to that. I don't think the selling out part, but he definitely is appealing to heartstrings. And, and the Anne Hathaway character is particularly interesting. She's 
Dr. Amelia Brand, and she is one of the astronauts that goes off looking for a new world because the Earth is dying. And she notes that love is a power in the universe that is as powerful as space and time. And her quote is that love isn't something we invented. It's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love is one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. And that sort of propels the story. But I, um, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the blowback that he's getting. And I also appreciate some of the discussion that it's, it's um, prompting in the blogosphere because, you know, so much of this is how we move forward as we sort of, you know, try out these ideas and materialists who think that there's no such thing as free will or, in, or, or interiority uh, get challenged. There was a quote from the Reddit site, and Reddit is this great conglomeration of communities that is curated. It's actually a great site. I've mentioned it before. I think it's really an interesting site for integralists, R-E-D-D-I-T dot com. But there's a community on there about this movie. And one of the comments was about this love piece. And this woman wrote, and I, I thought it was worth noting, she said, we love despite the fact that doing so provides us with no evolutionary utility. Where does love come from? We already describe love with words like attraction. I'm not sure if it totally makes sense, but it's funny to think of love as this gravitationally sensitive emotion. Is it possible that Brand's love, this is Anne Hathaway character, for Edmund, which is another character, is actually a scientific decision she's making so again, people playing with the interiors and exteriors, I actually think that's wrong in a technical sense. Uh, one of the things that we've been really exploring uh, in the last year, one of the big things I've learned this year, if you will, is that evolutionary theory, and starting with Darwin, actually posits that the engine of evolution is not just survival of the fit fittest and competition, but also love and affiliation and creativity and selection. And this is some of the work that David Loy is doing that um, we've highlighted on this show. And uh, his book, Integral Evolution, is coming out uh, at some point here. And I am really interested in reading that. So actually, one other point <laughs> about Interstellar and about Christopher Nolan's movies in general is that, you know, I almost didn't go to this movie because I was so annoyed in the Batman movies that you couldn't understand so much of the dialogue, that it was mumbly and overwhelmed by the sound effects and the, move, and the music. And that was true of, of this movie as well. In fact, there's a scene where Michael Caine, he's the, you know, sort of lead scientist back on Earth and he's old and he's literally on his deathbed. I mean, and he's, you know, got the hoses in his nose and tubes and drool and the whole bit. And he's talking to Jessica Chastain about, you know, a really important plot point. And, and you, could, you could understand it, except at the end, there's, there's kind of this moment of, oh, oh, and there's one last thing. And it's Bielsomabilagug. It's just completely... And understandable. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? 
And so it, apparently he's getting a lot of blowback, uh, Christopher Nolan, about this sort of thing. And he uh, had an interview with The Hollywood Reporter earlier today where he, he said that, he explained it. He said, what I'm trying to do here is follow the emotional state of Jessica Chastain's character as she starts to understand what he's been saying. Information is communicated in various ways over the next scene. That's the way I like to work. I don't like to hang everything on one particular line. And then he sums it up by saying, there are particular moments in my films where I decide to use dialogue as a sound effect. So, you know, in a way that made me feel better because I realized that maybe for me as a sort of explorer and seeker in an Enneagram 5, I really want to know all the information. So it annoys me that I'm not hearing something. But the fact that it wasn't a mistake on his part or mine, I wasn't supposed to understand it, kind of helps. It's, you know, sort of an impressionistic approach to movie making. All right. So yeah, check out Interstellar. It's well worth seeing. And again, it's really stuck with me. And I think it's a really fine movie and, and uh, a candidate for uh, integral art. All right. So I want to just continue with this love theme a little bit. We're actually entering a time of year where the focus is on love. We're entering the holiday season. And here in the United States, you know, next week is Thanksgiving. It's a big holiday. Uh, in December is Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and Christmas and the winter solstice and all of the, you know, um, celebrations that come with that time of year where the sun is coming back in the Northern Hemisphere. It's, it's actually uh, going away, of course, in the Southern Hemisphere. But Thanksgiving and Christmas, particularly, and I'm, you know, my background is Christian, uh, is they're, they're great because Thanksgiving, for instance, is, is really about just being grateful for what you have. It's a, it's a nice, simple holiday. You don't have to, there's not a lot of politics involved. You know, we have the story of the pilgrims and the Indians and sharing their harvest celebration, and that actually happened. Uh, and then it went south, and we all know the rest of the story is a bit problematic. But it's still important to bring this sort of conscious gratitude online, and it's really one of the opportunities of these holidays. Uh, there was a uh, study that showed that in terms of happiness, in terms of creating happiness, and you know there's this whole happiness um, uh, psychology, the positive psychology, that was developed originally by Martin Seligman, but has become a big uh, realm of, of psychology, positive psychology, creating positive states. And the thing that was most correlated with creating the longest lasting positive state in studies that were done was the actual act of sitting down and writing a letter to somebody that you're grateful for, for some reason, you know, maybe it's a teacher or, or a parent or, you know, just somebody in your life that did something for which you're grateful and then hand de delivering the message to them. And that is associated with happiness that lasts for many weeks. This was the longest thing that you could do to create, you know, a vibration of happiness. So, that's going to be my project for Thanksgiving, 
is to actually do that. And I'd encourage you to do, do the same thing. If you've been listening to the Daily Evolver over time here, you know, one of the critiques that we get about Integral is that it's heady. It's just about thinking. Uh, I agree with that. I actually am of the opinion that thoughts are things. This is something that Ken Wilber talks a lot about, that actually thinking, you know, or doing meditation or doing a loving kindness or a gratitude meditation actually affects the field that we lived in. It actually affects the cosmos itself. So there's that. But that's kind of not that satisfying to people who really want to do something and, you know, take actual action. So here's an action item for you. For Thanksgiving, sit down, think about who you're grateful to, write them a letter, and hand deliver it. This is our experiment. Uh, this is our scientific experiment. Uh, and then see what happens. See how that is for you, how it is for them and how that affects the field of not only your relationship with them, but the field of your own consciousness and, you know, maybe the world at large. So I wanted to play an excerpt from one of the um, conversations I've been having with Keith Witt. And for those of you who follow along with my work know that I do a regular talk with Keith. Keith Witt is one of our leading integral psychotherapists. He works out of Santa Barbara, California. He's been doing psychotherapy for over 40 years full time. So he's seen literally thousands of people, tens of thousands of hours. And love is at the basis of what he's doing. I mean, that's really, from an integral perspective, what we're doing as we evolve, as we continue to develop, is we are increasing the circle of things that we see, care about, and love. You know, from our family, to our tribe, to our culture, to our nation, to our whole world, to the animals, to all living beings. And then finally, we go cosmocentric to all beings known and unknown in the cosmos. And we include all of those in our circle of moral consideration, or love is the shorthand for that. Keith has done a program called Loving Completely, which is available on Integral Life. And the, in our last conversation, which has yet to be uh, posted, it's going to be posted in the next week or so, we talked about, you know, what love is. It's this sort of realization of unity. So, Brett, if you have that queued up, uh, let's play that. I think, what did you say, it's three or four minutes? Yeah, that's right. Everything is relationships. Relationships with ourselves, relationships with God, relationships with each other. And all those relationships involve varying degrees of being at one with. And one of my favorite definitions of love is being at one with. And people, when they evolve, evolve towards more of a sense of that oneness, uh, towards unity, towards love. So loving completely is is understanding that that multi-dimensional universe that we each walk into that's always shifting as we shift is characterized by us loving better or worse in a wide variety of areas with ourselves with our children and with our past present and future our friends work with the environment and so on and loving completely is 
surrendering to that evolutionary impulse towards complete unity. And loving completely, then, is unity with everything. Mm-hmm. And so that's the goal. And it's the mission of, of most of us in Integral to support that evolutionary push as it is embodied through people interacting in consciousness, interacting with the universe and with itself, with mm-hmm. ourselves. To think of love as a realization of unity, it's kind of a thrilling thing, actually. I mean, it helps me to walk around and see everybody that I meet as sort of myself, in a way. And not in an egocentric way, but just that I am them and they are me. And there's just a natural love that arises out of that, right? It's just there. Yeah. When you and I were talking about it, you said, yeah, I get it. I am a love machine. I want to be a better love machine. <laughs> yeah, I do. And, and, you know, a lot of people, if they were describing Jeff Salzman, would say, yeah, Jeff Salzman, love machine. <laughs> <laughs> And then the struggle, of course, and this is also something that you said when we were talking, is that we have the fear operating system and the love operating system, which are in opposition to each other. Yeah. And that dialectic between the fear operating system and the love operating system informs our life. Uh, in a way, it reflects a lot of the work of Suzanne Cook-Gruder and Bina Sharma, mm-hmm. where they, they organize their, their whole developmental approach off of the dialectic. Because there's always the dialectic. Until we get to, to complete unity, to non-dualism, everything's informed by the dialectic. And that dialectic is, is the fear operating system and the love operating mm-hmm. system. And eventually we want them integrated into the complete loving operating system. Right. Thanks, Brett. And thanks, Keith. That really is the move that we make. And you'll see this on the, the altitudes of development as we move from green Uh, or first tier, green, orange, amber, red, uh, these earlier stages of development, into integral stages of development, one of the key moves is that we are motivated less and less by fear and more and more by love. And so knowing that, that sort of becomes our project. And one of the first projects of integral is to go back and love the parts of yourself and parts of the culture and really part of the uh, evolutionary story of hum- humanity that have been left out. And this is, you know, th- this time of year offers us a, really an interesting opportunity to do that. If we think about, at least those of us here in the Northern Hemisphere, it's the winter, solst- winter solstice. And this has been really super important to humanity from the beginning. In fact, one could argue it was more important to early humans than it is to us now because they didn't have the indoors. And you can imagine how closely they watched the sun recede into the uh, south and then come back uh, at the you know end of the year into the north again and get the longer days and it was the planting season. It was when things would start growing again. The sap was rising. And we want to be in touch with that, even though we're, you know, completely modern people who live indoors and it doesn't matter and we have electric lights. I mean, what an a, a astonishing development, first of all, technologically, that we have this thing called the indoors. Let's pause and appreciate that. But at the same time, let's go back and reclaim this earlier relationship with our world 
And I've been doing that. I, I, I actually, especially now that the leaves have fallen, I can see the sun set against the Flatirons, against the mountains here in Boulder. And I've been noting every night that the sun sets a little bit more to the south, a little bit more to the left. And the days are a little bit shorter, and I can actually see that happening. You know, it's a practice of actually feeling into our natural world. And this gets us into the reintegration of these earlier strata of development. Remember, we don't move beyond earlier strata of development. We include them as we transcend them into a larger space that is able to hold them, actually. So, you know, we want to get that back. And then, of course, there's the traditionalist view of this time of year. And, and, and if I just use my own background of Christianity and Christmas, it's the birth of God in human form. It's God brought into the human realm, uh, a loving intelligence that sees us, loves us, and that we can pattern ourselves after. And this is true not just in theistic traditions, but also non-theistic traditions, such as Buddhism, which have all sorts of, depending on the, the, the strain of Buddhism, all sorts of deities and certainly markings of these times of year that are really deeply meaningful. And so we sort of want that too. I mean, we, we do want that. Now, we don't want uh, sort of this mythical understanding of, Jesus was born and he was a sacrifice in order to assuage the, you know, sense of justice of this almighty God. It's, it all just gets so, I mean, I can feel myself contract and constrict as I try to re-believe exclusively this story that I was raised on that was so powerful to me at the time. Uh, but it's still, an, there's, there's something that remains, there's this sense of being faithful to something that is alive, intelligent, loving, and who sees me and loves me and that I am part of. And I can work with that, you know, round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, all of that stuff. I want to let that back in, in a way that I may have disowned, in a way that transcends how I may have disowned it as I move through modernity. And of course, modernity is the next stage of development after traditionalism. And of course, at this point, all the magic is wrung out of the system, all of the myth, God doesn't exist. But, you know, there's still these vestiges of celebration and, and gift giving, but it becomes commercial, materialistic, consumerism, you know, trudging along. It's, it's why I love Thanksgiving and am ambivalent about Christmas. Thanksgiving is easy. You just have to make sweet potatoes. But Christmas, you have to do gifts and who's going to get what and how much money am I going to spend and what am I going to get? And it's just um, very, very distracting. And that you can see why traditionalists uh, complain that, at least from a Christian tradition, that the Christ has been taken out of Christmas. It's become Xmas, you know, which is really something that is so offensive to traditionalism. And then, of course, we move to postmodernism, where this is the home of the 
you know, famous, infamous war on Christmas, where we don't want to have religious hegemony anymore. It can't just be a Christmas, a Christian holiday that we have to include, the, you know, all the other religions, because they all have some way of marking this solstice of this time of year, including the, um, you know, the pagans. <laughs> One of my favorite stories about that is, you know, here in Boulder, we're, we're right up against these mount mountains called the Flatirons, which are sort of this vertical cliff of mountains right to a, directly to our west. And for years, as long as I've lived here, 30 plus years, they light this big star on the mountain. Uh, it must be, I don't know, 150 feet tall where it is. You could see it from everywhere in the town. And a couple years ago, there was a letter to the editor from the Wiccans, <laughs> from the Boulder pagans. Of course, Boulder's this you know, crazy green town in a way, and everybody's here and everybody's welcome. And the head of the Wiccans wrote to the people of Boulder, thank you so much for once again lighting our sacred pentagram over your lovely city. And so <laughs> it was a great sort of, um, I think it was a little bit of a jab, but it was also, you know, reminding us that there's lots of ways to look at these things. So, you know, there, it's absolutely appropriate that we understand that this time of year is not owned by the Christians. Uh, it, it sort of uh, helps us to see that Christianity has has, as every religion does, taken the myths of the previous stage and reinterpreted them and, and, and brought them into a higher stage of development. And we just need to be conscious of that. And then at Integral, uh, as I was saying, this is an integration of all of them. And we actually want to, as best we can, as a practice, appreciate all of what these previous stages bring us. And this is, you know, that move, as, as Keith was talking about, from the fear operating system, where we have to assuage the nature spirits, and we have to sacrifice a virgin so that the uh, harvest is good, uh, to the, you have to believe that Jesus is your only way to heaven. And if, if you reject Jesus, you're going to suffer for eternity. And this modernist dream where it's about what you can get and give and material and, you know, spending money. And this postmodern, you know, in a sense, muddle, where you want to bring everything back online, uh, but there's no sense of how things fit or where hierarchies are, are appropriate. And so at Integral, it allows us to sort all of these things out and sort of be aware of all of them as we uh, enter this new season. And, you know, I'm trying to, you know, figure out, so how do I, as an integralist, approach it? Because I, I'm, I'm tired of dreading Christmas. And so here's what I've come up with, is that, you know, I get that we want to give gifts and get gifts. This is as old as being human. But I don't want to just buy things. I just, I, I can't bear the idea of going to the mall with my list of who needs what, or what I need, you know, or, or going through Amazon and, you know, picking gifts and sending them. So I've decided to uh, go with the spirit of Christmas and honor my own tradition and look at Jesus, who, you know, I don't believe in mythically, but still, you know, an important part of my own development and see that 
Jesus talked about the poor. And, and, you know, he's talked about the poor a lot, actually. You know, one of his injunctions was to give everything you have to the poor and follow me. Now, not many of us are actually able to do that or willing to do that. I'm, I'm in that category. But I do want to be helpful. And I, 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 so I've, I've, I've sort of readjusted this whole idea of gift giving to you know, a charitable giving. And my pledge for this Christmas season is to not get material gifts for people, but to give gifts to people and causes and the environment and animals that are in need in the name of the people that I love. And, um, you know, that's not actually, in a sense, that easy to do because there's so many charities, there's so many people doing so much good work. And then there's, you know, certain charlatanism to it too. And you have to be careful. So I found that Consumer Reports, which is one of the organizations that I trust, they did their ratings on charity watchdogs. So these are the the, the groups that uh, analyze and recommend or, or, uh, or don't recommend various charities. And I'll post these on the site. The three major charity watchdogs that Consumer Reports approves of are Charity Navigator, Charity Watch, and BBB Wise Giving Alliance. And I'll, as I said, I'll post them on the site. And these watchdogs rate charities based on how they spend their money, uh, protect donor privacy, how they govern themselves, what percentage of the money they actually give away, how much is used for administration. And, you know, they have different criteria and they don't always agree. But it was really fun to spend a few hours yesterday looking at these, you know, there's literally scores of very highly regarded and approved charities that are doing anything from, you know, guide dogs for the blind, the Wounded Warrior Project, Women for Women, which is uh, empowering women around the world, particularly in developing countries, with education, with a goat, with microfinance, uh, Amnesty International, the ACLU, for, for us good liberals, uh, Goodwill Industries, uh, very, very highly rated, Freedom from Hunger, the Corporate Accountability International uh, that keeps tabs on corporate practices, sick children. I mean, there's just, it goes on and on and on. And to actually uh, be pairing up this kind of a gift to a particular person. So to think about, you know, a person that I love that I'd be giving a gift to, what in this territory would be a good gift rather than another pair of gloves? So I'm excited about that. And again, I'm trying to come up, people, with action items here because I get that thoughts or things is not the most motivating, uh, not the most motivating thing because, uh, again, this is moving into the love operating system. I, I don't want to feel ambivalent about a materialistic Christmas anymore. I'm just sort of over it. So we'll see how this goes. But that's my pledge. I'll let you know how it goes uh, as we start the winter season in January. All right. I just want to talk a little bit about it. I, I'm not going to be 
doing the uh, Tuesday night calls until January 6th. That'll be the next one. But uh, the Daily Evolver will continue to uh, go, and I have a number of projects that I'm working on. One is we're just updating the site in general. But also I have a number of really interesting interviews coming up, one of which is with Elza Malouf, who has written a book called Emerge, The Rise of Functional Democracy in the Future of the Middle East. Very, very integrally informed, a student of Ken Wilber, a colleague of Don Beck uh, from Spiral Dynamics fame, and who was born in Lebanon. She's a lawyer. She's lived in America. She has been working in the Middle East her whole life. And her book is, I'm just loving it. I'm about oh, maybe 70 pages into it. And her analysis of the Middle East is spot on. And her prescriptions, I, I read ahead a little bit, about the type of capitalism, the type of modernity that uh, needs to be indigenously grown in these uh, countries. Uh, it's very, very hopeful. So I'm excited about my talk with her. I'm uh, going to continue working with Ken Wilber. Uh, we're, um, we're planning the next Integral Living Room, which is at the end of May, Memorial Day weekend coming up in 2015. And our theme this time is going to be uh, soul work and, you know, shamanistic practices. We're not going to do any kind of, you know, deep uh, psychological or ayahuasca journey, <laughs> although I, you know, don't necessarily, I, I, I recommend those in other contexts. But, uh, you know, to talk about subtle energies and, you know, soul work with Ken and to plan this is, uh, I'm excited about that. I'm working with Steve McIntosh. Uh, he's doing uh, so much thinking on the future left and the future right in politics, on, on political polarization and how we move forward by each side adopting the best of the other. And that's you know how we use the polarities of left and right to move forward. In fact, he did a call a couple of weeks ago called the, uh, on the future left, a caucus, a virtual caucus, and has a call coming up that you can see on his site uh, about the future of the right uh, coming up on December 3rd, which is two weeks from tomorrow. And you can be on that live call if you're interested, check it out. Also working with uh, doing a conversation with Rob McNamara, who wrote The Elegant Self. He's working on a new book on elegant leadership. And Rob is somebody to pay attention to. He's really one of the hot, young, integral thinkers, in my opinion, in the whole you know, integral community. And uh, is working now at Harvard uh, under the leading developmental psychologist, I think probably in the world, certainly one of them. Uh, Robert Keegan. And um, so congratulations to Rob and all of that. And I'm um, looking forward to sharing some of his ideas with you. All right. So I see we have a couple hands raised. Oh, I also wanted to say that on my site, the Daily Evolver site, there's a button called Speak Pipe. It's a big orange button on the opening page. I think it's actually in a couple places. And if you click that button, you can leave me a verbal message. And I love getting them. I, I, I'm getting a lot of them and uh, I respond to most of them. I can't respond to all of them. But it also is a way of um, bringing up topics and questions that I can play on future shows. So check out the speak pipe on dailyevolver.com. So let's hear from uh, Brian. 
Yeah, thanks, uh, Jeff. Um, I just wanted to chime in on the thing about, I was thinking about what you were saying about Christmas and gifts and um, a couple things. One is I wanted to put in a good word for Lawrence Lessig and the stuff, all the work that he's doing. Um, yeah, what is that? That's getting, the, I've heard about that. May Day or something? Well, yeah, and then he has this thing, Root Strikers, and actually I'm not up on what everything is called, but if you see, people can see his TED Talk, he's spoken at Google, he's very eloquent speaking about getting the sort of ownership, the money ownership of Congress. He, he's saying, you know, we can't affect change on, on climate change or much of anything else, whether you be on the right or the left, when there's people who've got it pretty well rigged. Yeah. And I love the way he's talking about it. It's a very, it's, he doesn't talk about integral at all, but it actually is a very integral viewpoint. And I, the other thing I like is in politics, he's really saying, let's listen to everybody and let's do something that would be good for all of us, which is a, a relatively unusual and somewhat hard to say when you're actually up to something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. So I really, really uh, have um, just been loving what he's up to lately. And it occurred to me, as I was listening, I was like, well, what is it about gift giving? Like gift giving, the, the world seemed smaller, I think, in the past. And so gift giving was very close. It was your neighbors and maybe the folks in your neighborhood or your town or your company. And I think nowadays it's, it's maybe hard, at least for me. One of the things that's, ch that's challenging to me is seeing the whole picture of where we might be going and what might make a difference. Um, you know, I know I want to love people. I know I want to make a contribution, but I don't always know exactly where we should be going or what I should be. What's the future that a gift would be appropriate to? Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> and so it just occurred to me that, you, you know, that maybe if you do, if there is somebody doing something and you're either a part of it or you contribute to it, contributing to that on behalf of other people's names, you know, if you just picked five people or 10 people, that could be a huge way to, you know, get the word out and make a gift and love people in a particular way that you see as constructive. Yeah, I think it's actually the future of gift giving. I mean, there was a time when, and I, I can think even of my own childhood, where we didn't have everything we needed. We were, uh, you know, we weren't poor, but we were working class. And there was a certain argument for getting material stuff. We sort of needed it. And I, I got a lot of underwear and socks. <laughs> it was always the joke. From my mom and dad, they, that's what I get. I get other stuff too, but you know, a lot of it was sort of the regular stuff. But now we're in a world for many of us where material stuff—it's almost like it's almost like calories. We spent two hundred fifty thousand years looking for calories, and in the last fifty years, we're suddenly overwhelmed by them. And we have a certain there's a word for it, affluenza. Uh, a certain malaise that comes from, especially kids, good Lord, the stuff they get, the stuff, the stuff, the stuff, uh, that there's something that just be so, sort of becomes, there's a sort of a moral intuition that arises. And I, I can feel it. People have been talking about it for years, where it's just, let's get off of this merry-go-round. And now, we, of course, we have to swim upstream. That's always the case in evolution, is that we have to challenge the uh, endless commercials and you know displays in the stores and Amazon and emails and all of that stuff, um, and really try something else where 
gift giving becomes, and this is my fantasy, I'm going to do a little experiment and see how it works, becomes thinking of the people that I want to give gifts to and what they care about or what I think they care about and making a contribution to a cause that would be important and meaningful to them. I mean, that's as much fun as deciding who gets gloves and who gets boots, I think, and who gets a toy. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. But I'm guessing and predicting that we are, as we move into a love operating system, that this becomes, because we're not going to stop needing to give each other gifts. That's just part of being human. But uh, what we give uh, could be something that is radically different and could catch on in a way that is very meaningful and helpful. Who knows how things evolve, but that's my... I'm, I'm putting a stake in the ground for that. All right, Brett, uh, what else is going on? Hey, we got an email from a local named Amy, and she wanted us to know that Foothills United Way actually puts out a yearly guide to volunteering over the holidays. Wow. Uh, places that need extra volunteers, you know, and it's apparently it's a pretty big list. And so she gave us the URL, which we can put on the site. It's volunteer.unitedwayfoothills.org slash holiday. Huh. And there's a link there. So if you want to give your time, you know, there's a good uh, an, another thing. I guess I shouldn't bother sending you a link to my Amazon wish list. <laughs> well, there may be some exceptions to the to the rule. But. No, it's uh, it's that's it's a great suggestion that United. That's part of the United Way, there, Brett, that she's recommending. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that would be one. You know, I don't know how international that is, but that's a national organization, United Way, and I wouldn't be surprised that there is some directory for other communities as well. All right, folks. Well, I see we're about at the end, and I often end with a poem or something that's inspirational, and I want to do that this time too. And this is a recording, again, another, I think it's three minutes or so, from one of our great enlightened Western masters, Alan Watts, who was a great teacher to me. Uh, he's dead now. Uh, he's a, uh, a, a, you know, he was big in the counterculture in the 70s and 60s. A great teacher, a great transmitter. And it's worth taking a moment to make a distinction between teaching and transmitting. Uh, teaching, of course, means showing somebody something or imparting information or making something clear. It's you know, very important that we do that human, as humans. Uh, transmitting is evoking a state uh, or a realization that takes you out of your smaller self into a bigger self. And of course, our small self is the apparent part of us, our flesh and blood and the lives that we lead and the you know, way we think and all of that stuff. This, the sense that I, Jeff, am a separate person acting on and with other people and things in the world. And a realization, a capital R realization, takes us out of that into just a bigger reality where I begin to see Jeff as an object in the best sense of the word rather than just be and identify with Jeff. And of course, the best teachers are also transmitters. We can all think of the great teachers at school or in our lives that have really not only 
given us new ways of thinking and doing things, but also taking us into new realizations of ourselves in the world. And this is what he's so good at, and it's so great. Brett found this. It's a, it's a rare recording of him. What he's doing is he's talking about the polarities of life and how we, in order to grow, need to hold both polarities of life and death and dark and light. Uh, we'll play it here and see what state it takes you into. Guess with that said, we'll wrap up for the fall season of the Daily Evolver. We'll be back on January 6th. Again, uh, visit the website. Uh, we'll be posting new stuff all the time. Integral Life will be posting our new stuff. Um, uh, leave me a speak pipe message. Leave me a message at jeff at dailyevolver.com. And it's so great to do this with you folks. And I thank you so much for the, you know, it's been a great year for the Daily Evolver uh, in terms of a number of listeners and new ways of getting it. Of course, we're on iTunes now and um, Stitcher and Integral Life, of course. So again, folks, thank you so much. And just, I encourage you to sit back, take a nice deep breath, and um, we will be taken out of this episode by one of my great heroes, Alan Watts. If you awaken from this illusion and you understand that black implies white, self implies other, life implies death, or shall I say, death implies life, you can feel yourself not as a stranger in the world, not as something here on probation, not as something that has arrived here by fluke, but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental. I'm not trying to sell you on this idea in the sense of converting you to it. I want you to play with it. I want you to think of its possibilities. I'm not trying to prove it. I'm just putting it forward as a possibility of life to think about. So then, let's suppose that you were able every night to dream any dream you wanted to dream. And that you could, for example, have the power within one night to dream 75 years of time or any length of time you wanted to have. And you would naturally, as you began on this adventure of dreams, you would fulfill all your wishes. You would have every kind of pleasure you could conceive. And after several nights of 75 years of total pleasure each, you would say, well, that was pretty great. But now let's, um, let's have a surprise. Let's have a dream which isn't under control. Well, something is going to happen to me that I don't know what it's going to be. And uh, you, you would dig that and come out of that and say, wow, that was a, a close shave, wasn't it? And then you would get more and more adventurous and you would make further and further out gambles as to what you would dream. And finally, you would dream where you are now. 
you would dream the dream of living the life that you are actually living today. That would be within the infinite multiplicity of choices you would have, of playing that you weren't God. Because the whole nature of the Godhead, according to this idea, is to play that he's not. So in this idea then, everybody is fundamentally the ultimate reality. Not God in a politically kingly sense, but God in the sense of being the self, the deep down basic whatever there is. And you're all that, only you're pretending you're not. Thank you, Alan Watts. Thank you, everybody. Have a great Thanksgiving for those in the U.S. here. Have a great holiday, a great solstice, everyone. And we'll see you back here early January, January 6th. Uh, this is Jeff Salzman signing off. Good night. Mm -hmm.